Okay, here's a joke. What's the difference between boogers and broccoli? I don't know. What's the difference? Kids will eat the boogers. <laughs> okay, now that's, that is really not a funny joke, but on today's edition of B-Side, we're gonna have lots of jokes, some funny, some not funny, as we flip to the B-Side. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm out on the streets of Berkeley with B-Side's Erica Kelly. Hello. And what are we doing out here? Well, what we're trying to do is to get people to tell us some of their best jokes. Excuse me. No, no jokes? Nothing funny? Excuse me. Do you have one second? We're, we're doing a show about jokes. Can you tell me your best joke? Oh, I can't think of one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm very bad with jokes. Yeah. Excuse me. Can I ask you a question? Uh -huh. um, we're doing a show about jokes, and I was wondering if you had any jokes that you could tell us. Let's see. Wait. Which one oh, should I, I use? <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, I don't know. Ah, I can't think of one. It's amazing how many people just can't tell a joke when you ask them to. They remember they heard a great joke yesterday, or they've got a hundred at home on their email, but they just can't come up with one. Yeah, there are people whose job it is to come up with them every single day, to make us laugh every night when we're half asleep, like David Letterman and Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien. But they have a little help. Have you ever noticed that the audience thinks they're like the funniest things ever? The studio audience is laughing so much more than I ever am at home. There's a reason for that. A few years ago, I went to a taping of the Jay Leno show, and you have to stand in line forever before the show, like hours, and then you get in there and you're sitting, and it's just boring, it's no fun. And then this guy comes out, he's the warm-up guy, and he's supposed to get the audience in the mood to laugh at jokes. Ellen Horn spent some time with a warm-up guy, the warm-up guy for Conan O'Brien, and she asked him, what the difference is between talking to one person and a crowd of people. I don't understand where the woo has come from in society, but like if you mention Fabio in a room full of 250 people, you're going to get at least 10 woos. And I've yet to come across someone in an individual conversation because I mentioned Fabio a lot and never have I gotten Hi, a woo. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Come on. Thank you for coming out. Hi, I'm Brian McCann. I do warm-up uh, for the Conan O'Brien show. Tell the crowd, Conan will be out here in a second. He's, uh, he's just, you know, slamming a bottle of vodka backstage. If I told that to an individual, they might be like, what, really? He's an alcoholic? T tell that to a crowd, and by and large, it's going to like, well, yeah. Uh, are most of you from New York? Yeah. All right. I have, like, say, on average, a 20-minute conversation with 250 people every day. Where are you from? Queens! And then from there, I make fun of them. I talk to them, and then I make fun of them, and mock them, and uh, point at them, and everyone laughs. From Queens. Yeah? Yes. And, uh, what part of Queens are you in? Conanville. Conanville, yes. <laughs> okay, we're done talking to you. Fantastic. <laughs> Where's the other no from? Maryland. That's it. We, we usually all come together at the expense of some poor guy in the audience who didn't have as clever of a comeback as I did. So That, I, that would qualify. <laughs> and it's fun, too, to, to find 
people from uh, foreign countries who like come over here and they've been told like, oh, go see you know, Late Night. That's a funny show. And if you like funny, like you'll love that. Ecuador. Thank you. Do you, do you have any idea where you are? Do you know what the, the show is? Have you? Uh, we're not on in Ecuador, are we? No, we, have, we have TV. Yes, I know you probably have TV. <laughs> And then I'm like, y you have no idea? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, he's a little black guy. He comes out here. He says, what you talking about, Willis? You know, it's lots of fun. I think you're going to love it. And then the rest of the audience kind of, we all sort of laugh at the foreigner because they're like nodding their head like, oh, yeah, sounds good, sounds good. And then, then they see the big, tall albino guy come out and they're shocked. They think they've been ripped off. So folks, we're ready to go. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming. The audience is, uh, as I said earlier, extremely important to our show. Like, if you look above you, there's microphones hanging down. That's because you're live and you're mic'd and we want to hear you. So, uh, we, yeah, we want to hear you laughing and clapping. Uh, and pretty much that's it. Not so much like, I'm from Ecuador. You know, like, uh, <laughs> we have security and they'll shoot you. So um, <laughs> it would really put a damper on your trip, I have a feeling. So, uh, uh, but, you know, if, if we could give everybody... Uh, T-shirts, jello shots, and gift certificates to White Castle. We would have great crowds every single night. If there was a mob of angry citizens like marching on the White House, if the Secret Service went out there and gave everybody a, a crappy CD and a Coke, they'd disperse and just be like, well, you know, we didn't get our point across, but check it out, man. I got Beastie Boys done by... Uh, Thurman and a Coke, so that's pretty cool. Thank you very much for coming. We're happy you're here. We're going to get the band out here. It's the Max Weinberg 7. Live and in person. Ready to rock. Yo, yo. And let's get out the leader of the band, the king of the big beat. Please give it up for Mr. Max Weinberg. Come on. Thanks for coming. Ellen Horn first produced that story for WNYC's Radio Lab. I'm Dr. Jokiman, your lab therapist. And uh, my name is James, which is really a, a trade secret. The Jokiman is a fixture of Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. He's a homeless guy and he's been standing on the streets in front of a pizza place called Fat Slice for the last 20 to 25 years, telling jokes for a fee. But anyway, here's a joke. Did I ever tell you why the president doesn't like dogs in the White House? No. They pee on the bushes. <laughs> you think they'll be cutting up a fuss about that? Okay, let's try this. There was this uh, father, he had three beautiful daughters. They were all going out on a date each. So the first date shows up, he says, My name is Joe. I came to pick up Flo. We're going to the show. Go tell it's time to go. He goes to get her and they leave. Second guy knocks on the door and says, My name is Freddy. I came to pick up Betty. We're going to eat spaghetti. Go tell her that I'm ready. He goes to get her and they leave. The third guy knocks on the door. He goes, Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. My name is Buck. His father slammed the door in his face. <laughs> he said, you're not taking my baby nowhere with a name like Buck. Your ass is out of luck. <laughs> now, now, how many jokes do you tell a day? Oh, that's, oh, that's hard to tell, hard to say. I mean, 
I guess hundreds, hundreds. How do you think of them all? Where do they all come from? Well, uh, I come up with some myself, and, um, and then some people, they bring jokes to me on a stretcher. And since I'm a doctor, I revive them, I bring them back to life, I put life support on them, and I'm going to have to stick an IV in a joke to bring it back to life. I think I have a perfect candidate to introduce the jokey man to, Dave John's dad. He tells a lot of jokes, but not all of them are funny. So a horse walks into a bar, right? Bartender says, hey, mister, why the long face? I know, y you've heard that one before, but I think it's funny. Horses do have long faces. And what was that horse doing in a bar in the first place? Okay, but seriously, have you heard the one about the guy who goes to the doctor complaining about silent gas? And the doctor said, well, tell me about it. Uh, does this happen often? Or what? Oh, he says, it happens uh, frequently. He said, uh, well, how frequently? Well, like on, on the way over here this morning, coming to the doctor's, uh, your office, uh, was riding the bus. It, I had silent gas uh, a couple of times. You know this one? It's one of my dad's favorites. My dad has a lot of favorites. And uh, then once I got here, I had silent gas coming up on the elevator and uh, out in the waiting room uh, once or twice. And, uh, you know, I don't know what, what the story is on that or what to be done about it. Truth is, nothing can be done about it. You're trapped inside one of my dad's jokes, a sort of cul-de-sac in the space-time continuum. There's only one way out. That's the punchline. And it'll come eventually. You just have to wait for better or worse. And uh, the doctor said, well, uh, the first thing we're going to do is uh, get your hearing checked. My dad learned most of his jokes from a guy named Scotty he knew from work. It was the early 70s, and they were both computer programmers working in air-conditioned rooms packed with mainframes that ran on vacuum tubes. Very often, somebody would say, hey, Scotty, you heard any good new jokes? You know, and, and he always would. And uh, at first, I just enjoyed them. But then later on, I uh, realized that, uh, you know, I, I'm not one to remember jokes. So I decided that I would uh, make a few notes. It was the birth of my dad's joke journal, a black composition notebook where he'd keep track of jokes or stories he wanted to remember. Of course, this had an effect on his family, his captive audience around the dinner table. One joke in particular gained a certain notoriety. The meep joke. I mean, to me, it just seems, it strikes me as the funniest of the, the joke that I know. But I found that it generally falls flat on other ears. And uh, that's about these two fellows over in uh, England who are digging a ditch. And uh, this cat wanders by and uh, walks on the side of the ditch there and rubs up against one of the ditch diggers. And uh, he pets him a little bit, and uh, the cat says, Meep. And uh, he pets him again, and the cat says, Meep. And uh, the ditch digger says to his buddy, he says, Did you hear what that cat said? Meep. I've never known a cat that, that said anything but meow. And you're like, okay, seems funny. A cat that says meep. Weird, you know, could be funny. Uh, you want you wonder where it's going, and and there you are, you're trapped inside the joke in suspended animation, and all you can do is wait for deliverance. And it was about time for a break anyway, so they 
they knocked off and they went into the pub across the way. And uh, one of them happened to think the barmaid might have a dictionary. Now, if you're like me, here's where you start to get nervous. Because there's nothing funny about dictionaries. At least not since second grade when you first checked out what Webster's has to say about the word fart. But that's a whole different thing. What I'm saying is, when a dictionary appears in a joke, it's a red flag. And, and sure enough, a dictionary was produced. And uh, he was going to look up uh, Meep. And the other fellow said, no, it's not going to be in there. So he looked up there. And he, how do you spell it? Well, M-E-E-P, I guess. And he said, here it is. What does it say? It says, see meow. I remember one time after telling a friend one of my dad's jokes over dinner, he was like, you owe me five minutes of my life, which kind of pissed me off. It's one thing for me to make fun of my dad's jokes, but it's a whole other thing coming from somebody else. I mean, I'm quite sure that fathers have been subjecting their children to bad jokes since the dawn of time. My dad is simply carrying on that grand tradition. Which reminds me of another, this is a Scotty joke. This is about <clears throat> Billy Joe Smith from Beaumont, Texas. Have I told you this one before? As I've gotten older, I've actually come to really admire my dad's skill in the art form. Because as a storyteller, he has a wonderful dramatic touch. I mean, sure, sometimes the punchline leaves a little bit to be desired. But the narrative, he, he really nails it. Which you might say makes it all the more insidious when the joke turns out to be a lemon. But maybe that's really not the most important point. Another one would be, this fellow's up at uh, the pearly gates. And he's checking in with St. Peter and St. Peter... In a way, my dad's jokes invert the reigning paradigm in the narrative joke. In the normal social contract with the joke teller, the listener agrees to sit through the narrative with the expectation that the punchline will be worth the wait. My dad's jokes don't work that way. They're revolutionary. They demand a new way of listening. As an audience member, you've got to learn to bask in the story as it unfolds. It's about the journey and not the destination. Another one was the uh, <clears throat> uh, the circus train that got derailed somewhere down in Tennessee. All the animals got loose. When I was really little, sometimes after Little League games, my dad would take my brother and me for a ride in the car. We'd ask him where we were going, and he'd say we were just following his nose. You know, his nose, like the thing that's sticking out of the front of his head. But where was his nose taking us, we'd ask him. Only the nose knows, he'd say. And that, yeah, pretty much drove us crazy. Oh, now here's one. This is <clears throat> Frank Perdue was, you know, the, the chicken man, and he was quite influential, and uh, he managed to get an audience with the Pope one day. And so he would go I think maybe that's, that's kind of the big trick. Once you get to be the dad, it's kind of your show, you know? And your kids, they're coming along for the ride. And sometimes it might make them crazy because... They don't know where they're going, and they don't really have any say in the matter. But as it turns out, it's kind of more fun that way. Put it to good use. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good joke. That's a good one. That was a Scotty Scott joke. Like That's those. Frank Perdue. Mm. When is dinner going to be ready? <laughs> Dave Johns produced this story about his dad. 
Dave lives in New York City, his dad lives in Virginia. So this kid is like throwing a tennis ball down at cars and he keeps throwing it from an overpass down on cars. And it's attached to a string? Right, and it's attached to a string and he keeps, and it's wrapped around his wrist. And it gets caught on this truck and it pulls his arm off. So eventually they find the truck and they find the driver and they find his arm. But they arrest the guy who was driving the car. Why did they arrest him? Armed robbery. <laughs> Good one. Except when I heard that joke for the first time, I thought, huh, you mean this guy just randomly committed armed robbery and then they caught him for that when they found the arm? <laughs> that's even that's better. See, so sometimes there are jokes that are funny and some people just don't get it. John Tynan spoke to an artist who has a lot of people duped. I never thought too much about the history of television. I vaguely knew it started in black and white and then transitioned to color. But like any invention, I'm sure there were milestones of television's development along the way. But what did these proto-TVs look like? What pictures did they show? Steve Gompf has thought a lot about these questions. He runs the world's only museum devoted to the televisor, a device Steve describes as a precursor to the modern TV. Right now we're in the research center of the Televisor Museum International. It's the largest facility of its kind, basically. What is done there is we house and uh, collect different uh, historical documents concerning the Televisor era. Granted, these we're surrounded by over a dozen of these early mechanical inventions. Some are small, some ornate, some wooden, some plastic, many with a confusing array of dials and antenna. Steve shows me a six-inch box made of brass and mahogany with a circular viewing glass and a horn to project sound. If you think of it more as a, a visual music box than uh, television as we know it, that's more, um, will give you an idea of how the devices were used. Um, just as almost like this magical, charming device that only rich people could have. The Televisor Museum is not listed in Phoenix tourist guidebooks or in any guidebook. That's because there is no museum. It's actually a sham, an elaborate ruse he's put together in his own living room. Steve Gomp created these televisors out of his own imagination. He's really an artist. When I first started this work, one of the premises was if people would believe anything on TV, why wouldn't they believe anything is a TV? If, if you notice on the Argus here, the front plate of it, yeah, it is brass, but if you look at it, it's actually a toothbrush holder. You see the six little slots for your toothbrush, and the circular device where the lens system is, is where you place your cup. Not only that, the speaker is actually a bicycle horn that Steve picked up at Walgreens. Basically, they're found objects, everything from little brass ashtrays to um, little curtain rod ends to um, stuff I find in thrift stores to page magnifiers and any kind of lens systems I can get my hands on. Steve's work blurs the line between history and fantasy. But what's funny is that people believe televisors are real with their spooky music and scratchy videos of galloping fairies with antlers for heads, people look at these machines made out of toothbrush holders and bicycle horns. And while they're patently ridiculous, some people believe in them. It reminds me of an old, um, 
you know, in the olden days, and you'd go and they'd put the penny in to watch. That's what it reminds me of. Prehistoric television, I suppose. I mean, when was television actually invented? In the 20s? This is like 19th century television. That's how I would describe it, yeah. I like it. It reminds me of uh, something from the 20s in New York City. Have you seen anything like this before? Just on TV. I mean, I just saw it like on specials. I don't so much think that people are gullible. These devices are intentionally deceptive, so it wouldn't be fair to call people dumb. But what I think is that people go with their first impressions. They assume the televisors are real and then don't go beyond that. They don't stop to question the obvious absurdity of what's in front of them. That's kind of what I'm playing with, not only the idea of messing around with creating this kind of fake history of this early television. I'm also using it kind of as um, an installation to talk about the whole idea and structure and uh, context of the museum. When Steve's work is on display, museums and galleries usually go in on the joke and present the objects as real. Sometimes it works. I remember one of the first times I, I showed them, there was a docent in the gallery, and I got in a conversation with her, and she had to be about, uh, she must have been retired, so she was in her 60s, and uh, the conversation suddenly turned to how her grandfather was a tinkerer. She remembered these devices, and so I just kind of took it all in and was just amazed. For some who might not get the punchline, the televisors are a real piece of history. And for others, they're a fun and beautiful joke. For B-Side, I'm John Tynan. When I was in elementary school, I went to a friend's house for dinner. And we were sitting down to dinner, and her mom sat down, and the chair completely collapsed underneath her. And I was just like dying laughing, which was completely inappropriate. Um, sometimes the things that are not funny at all are the funniest. The most painful things can be hilarious. Rob Sack spoke to a guy who is mining life's most painful moments for humor. My name is David Nadelberg, and uh, a couple years ago, I found a love letter that I wrote to a girl named Leslie in the 10th grade who I stalked unsuccessfully and uh, I, I found this letter in an old box and I realized it was hideous and uh, hilarious at the same time and I knew that it should be on stage with others that were kind of like it and through that I created a show, a stage show called Mortified. Mortified is a stage show where people get on stage and they read aloud their most embarrassing, pathetic teenage writings, diaries, letters, journals, notes, even song lyrics, poems, um, in front of total strangers uh, who are there specifically just to laugh at them, not with them. And that uh, that's the show. I think people like participating in Mortified because there's a sense of release and catharsis um, in terms of shedding your inner dork. December 4th, a very short entry. Top three wish list. Three, grow. 
lose weight? And one, she says yes. And it's important to note, those are the same three things that run my life today. When we were all, when we were 12, 13, 14, 15, we were all, whether, even if we were popular, uh, we were all kind of this, these idiots, these freaks, these awkward souls. And um, there's sort of this, I think, sense of you're, you're acknowledging it to this audience that, hey, this was me and I don't care by reading aloud these old letters, journals, and whatnot that you wrote. And um, you're kind of casting it out into the air and just sort of being done with it. And, and I think that's what's sort of appealing. 
this camp. My nose and sinus are very stuffy. I have awful headaches. I feel very weak. Everybody except for two people in this cabin are auditions and I wind up having to reject them, it usually winds up being a, a compliment because it, we, I just have to, you know, it didn't suck enough. Because stuff really, it really has to suck. You really need to be pathetic in order to, to kind of get in um, and to have people like you uh, and laugh at you. You've been listening to B-Side. I'm the host and senior producer, Tamara Keith. This month's show was produced by Erica Kelly. With editing and production by Molly Peterson and Renee Gutel. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. If you want to learn more about B-Side, check out our website, www.radiobside.org. Thanks for listening. Found my locker and I found my classes. I lost my lunch and I broke my glasses. That guy is huge. That girl is wailing. First day of school and I